earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is within them, praising the one standing on the throne. So, Lord God, we want to join in that song of praise to you this morning. So would you open our hearts and would you preach to us your word? In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, this morning we're continuing in our series, Jesus Everywhere, which I really, hey, look, there's Mark. It's good to see you. Which I really like. Uh, he's been gone in Washington, right? Oh, California. He's somewhere. Okay, I got to stop just talking to people while I'm preaching. But anyway, we're doing this Jesus Everywhere thing, which I really love because basically it's like Peter gets to preach on all these weird Old Testament verses that he wouldn't normally get to preach on. And this morning we're preaching on 1 Kings uh, 13, which is absolutely a, a fascinating uh, section. And let me say, probably in the summer sometime we'll start a series on uh, Ephesians or Philippians. I'm, I'm not sure which, but for a while we've got a few more freaky weird verses to look at in the Old Testament. First Kings 13 may be one of the most amazing, and we're just going to scratch the surface uh, today, believe it or not, but if you want to really dig into it, I thought I, I just wanted to show you this. Carl Barth in Church Dogmatics has a great 17-page exegesis of this text, okay? So if you, if you listen this morning, you just go, man, I'd like to learn more about that. Um, find this somewhere and read every sentence very slowly, chew on it for a half hour, then read the next sentence, okay? But amazing, <laughs> amazing stuff. Anyway, in 1 Kings chapter 12, something uh, really amazing and profound happens, important in the history of Scripture and understanding the Bible, and that is that the nation of Israel splits in two. A man named Jeroboam, who had been one of Solomon's servants, leads the ten northern tribes of Israel in rebellion against King Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, of the house of David, of the tribe of Judah, the king of Judah. It's uh, the house of David and the tribe of Judah, you remember, to whom God promises uh, the Messiah, or from them will come the Messiah, the lion of the tribe of Judah. So anyway, this King Jeroboam, the rebel, all right, establishes the northern kingdom called Israel, now called Israel, or Samaria, which should sound familiar to you. He establishes the northern kingdom and worries about the southern kingdom, which is the Jews in Judah. Uh, the southern kingdom contained the temple in Jerusalem. Uh, you remember from Easter, Easter, also called Ariel, which means the lioness of God. First Kings chapter 13, um, verse 26. So Jerob, or, or, or let's see, or maybe this is 1226. Anyway, so Jeroboam, said in his heart, now the kingdom will turn back to the house of David. If this people go up to offer sacrifices in the temple of the Lord at Jerusalem, then the heart of this people, the northern kingdom, will turn again to their Lord, to Rehoboam, king of Judah, and they will kill me and return to Rehoboam, king of Judah. So the king, King Jeroboam, took counsel and made two calves of gold. And he said to the people, you have gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Behold your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And he set one in Bethel, the other in Dan. So, so King Jeroboam makes golden calves in order to compete with the worship of the Lord God in Jerusalem, in Judah, at the temple. Golden calves. Just like Israel had made as they journeyed 
through the wilderness, remember? Calves. I mean, of all the cool stuff that you could turn into an idol, right? Why calves? We know if we were agrarian Israelite peasants, I, I don't think we'd ask that question because nothing really is more useful to, uh, to a peasant than a calf or, or a cow, right? Now, not that we would ever do this. We enlightened American Christians, but if we were to make an idol, I mean, maybe we'd make uh, something like this into an idol. 400 horsepower. That's like 800 cow power. <laughs> or, or like 4,000 calf power, right? I mean, if we made it an idol, though, well, then we'd, do, we'd like bow down to it. We'd sacrifice all for it or sacrifice all to it. I mean, we might even spend 30 bucks to drive it 100 miles by ourselves, you know, something, something like that. Or maybe this would be our idol. You know, the calves were uh, made of, of, of gold. Money is uh, incredibly useful. Uh, gold is money. Or maybe this would be our idol. It was hanging on the wall in my bedroom in, in high school. Potency for fertility. Or maybe this would be our idol, the opinion of the crowd. In America, um, we often call that democracy. Or maybe this would be our idol, our country. Or perhaps this. I mean, who can argue with this? The family dinner table, right? I mean, that's a community in covenant. And nobody left alone, never alone. A sense of belonging. Or, or, or maybe this would be our, our idol. I mean, gosh, you, that's like all, you could like all the others, wrap them up and include them right there in, in, in that one, in, in church. Now, none of these things are bad in and of themselves. In fact, they're all very good and very useful. In fact, that's what makes them great idols. They're useful. Well, what about this? Is that a good idol? Because, I mean, like, how do you use a naked man hanging on a cross? Well, anyway, Jeroboam makes golden calves, builds an altar in Bethel, ordains his own clergy, and institutes a new national civic religion. He, he, makes, he makes a golden calf, not a, not a lion, for instance, not a lion, but, but a calf. And that makes some sense, doesn't it? I mean, lions are really cool, but calves are safe <laughs> and, and useful. Lions are cool in a zoo under control, but not standing in your way, on your path. And then they're a problem. Remember the scene in the Chronicles of Narnia when the children find out that Aslan, the king of Narnia, is, is a lion, and that they are destined to meet him at the stone table? Susan asks, gosh, is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, and no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Th th then he isn't safe, said Lucy. 
Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. And you all know Aslan is not a tame lion. He's not tame. Dorothy Sayers wrote this. The people who hanged Christ never accused him of being a bore. On the contrary, they thought him too dynamic to be safe. It has been left for later generations to muffle up that shattering personality and surround him with the atmosphere of tedium. We have very efficiently paired the claws of the Lion of Judah, certified him meek and mild, and recommended him as a fitting household pet for pale curates and pious old ladies. And that's what we do. That's what religion does. That's what Jeroboam was attempting to do, tame the lion, make him useful and, and, and idle. Tame the lion so, you know, it looks like a lion, but it acts like a donkey, a useful donkey. At the end of the Chronicles of Narnia, the end of old Narnia, an ape dresses a donkey in a, in a lion suit and pretends it's Aslan in order to gain control of the, of the whole country. It's an election year. That means you're going to see a lot of donkeys dressed in lion suits. And a lot of elephants dressed in lion suits. Looks like a lion, but acts like a Republican or, or a Democrat. <laughs> We all try to tame the Lion of Judah. I mean, around church, you see that kind of stuff all the time. We all try to tame the Lion of Judah and use him for our own purposes. I, I, think, that's, I think that's like a, a form of idolatry. We control idols. I think that's why we like them. We control idols, but in the end, idols control us. For we are what we worship, and here's the problem. Idols are dead. So anyway, Jeroboam makes a golden calf and institutes a new civic religion at Bethel. Chapter 13, verse 1. And behold, a man of God came out of Judah by the word of the Lord to Bethel. Jeroboam was standing by the altar to make offerings. This is the big day, okay? And the man cried against the altar by the word of the Lord and said, O altar, altar, uh, altar, altar, thus says the Lord, behold, a son shall be born to the house of David, Josiah by name, and he shall sacrifice on you the priests of the high places who make offerings upon you, and human bones shall be burned upon you. So anyway, this man of God just comes from Judah, just comes and prophesies against King Jeroboam and his new civic religion by the word of the Lord, speaking the word of the Lord. How many of you have heard the word of the Lord? You don't have to raise your hand, That's, but, I, but I all want everyone to ask the question in your heart. Have I heard the word of the Lord? of the Lord. Have we heard it? You know, it appears that this fellow wasn't a professional prophet, priest, or, or preacher, like me, or the clergy that Jeroboam had ordained. Actually, he looks an awful lot like Amos, who will prophesy against Bethel and King Jeroboam II 200 years from, from this point. Amos uh, was a shepherd and a fig farmer, that's what we find out. 
a shepherd and fig farmer from Judah, and the word of the Lord just came to him. Not a professional, just a fig farmer, and he started to prophesy. In Amos 3.8, he writes, The lion has roared, who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken, who can but prophesy? And so he goes to Bethel, and he prophesies. And uh, the king, and uh, King Jeroboam II, and Amaziah, the priests of Bethel, they try to shut Amos up, but they can't, they can't shut him up. They cannot stop the word of the Lord. Scripture says the word of the Lord, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the vision of soul and spirit, joint and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And through Isaiah, uh, Scripture says that the word of the Lord will not return empty. It will not return void, says God, but it will accomplish that for which I purpose. Genesis 1.1 and John 1 tell us that God creates all things with his word. So in the Chronicles of Narnia, Aslan the lion sings the world of Narnia into existence. Uncle Andrew is a magician. It means he's an idolater. And he doesn't want to be sung into existence by Aslan. So he won't hear the music, the, the word. He hears only his own word, making himself in his own image. In other words, he's insane. He's his own idol. Like most of the children of men, already dead in bondage to a lie. And yet in the beginning, God did say, let us make man and woman, male and female, let us make man in our own image. And the word of God does not return empty. On Easter we saw that as David sang the word, the word was singing David, remember? Taking David's discordant notes and singing them into a new harmony of grace by faith and faith by grace. I heard there was a secret chord that David played and it pleased the Lord. But you don't really care for music, do ya? It goes like this, the fourth, the fifth, the minor fall, the major lift, the baffled king composing, hallelujah. Com composing, hallelujah, and being composed by hallelujah. You see, nothing, nothing, nothing is as powerful as the word of God. Not even your sin. Your choice is not stronger than God's choice. Your choice to damn yourself is not stronger than God's choice to save yourself, save you. God's choice is stronger than your choice. So God's word is not safe, but good. Always good. Without it, we'll die. We'll die of thirst. But with it, we might die too. In the fourth book of the Chronicles of Narnia, a girl named Jill finds herself in a new world all alone and desperately thirsty. She's done something for which she feels incredibly ashamed, and now she's thoroughly uh, parched. She's thirsty. She spies a river of living water, and she begins to walk toward it, and then all of a sudden she sees an immense lion in her path. <laughs> On the way, the lion says, if you're thirsty, come drink. But she's terrified. 
Are you not thirsty, said the lion? I'm dying of thirst, said Jill. Then drink, said the lion. Ah, uh, may I, um, could, could I, would you, would you mind going away while I do, said Jill? The lion answered this with only a look and a very low growl. Will you not do anything? Will you promise not to do anything to me if I come, said Jill. I make no promises, said the lion. Jill was so thirsty by now, without noticing she had come a step nearer. Do you eat girls, she said. I have swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms, said the lion. It didn't say this as if it were boasting, nor as if it were sorry, nor as if it were angry. It just said it. Well, I, I dare not come and drink, said Jill. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh, oh dear, said Jill, coming another step nearer. I, I suppose I must go and, and look for another stream then. There is no other stream, said the lion. The lion in the way is the way. The lion in your path is your path. The, the word of the Lord, like a lion, isolates his prey. He will get you alone so that you will hear him alone. The word of the Lord is the truth. And you see, we hear the truth in our hearts. So no other person, group, or authority can hear it for you. It must happen in the sanctuary of your own heart. To, to hear the truth is to have faith. To have faith in the truth is to be captured by the truth in your heart. It's a decision in your heart which you must not abdicate to, to any crowd, be it church, country, religion. Soren Kierkegaard wrote, a crowd in its very concept is untruth. To, to make a decision then is to individually wrestle with the truth. A decision joins us to the eternal, writes Kierkegaard. A decision is the awakening to the eternal. In the end, the arch enemy of decision is cowardice. Cowardice is constantly at work trying to break off the good agreement of decision with eternity. Your cowardice, which is your idolatry, your fear of false gods, that cowardice always battles the inbreaking of eternity within your heart. In other words, it always battles the decision called faith. So have you heard the word of the Lord? Have you? You know, if you believe at least a little that Jesus is Lord, then you have. <laughs> And you are one of his sheep. We are his sheep. The lion is, ooh, that, no wonder it gets stressful. We're his sheep and the lion is our shepherd. It doesn't sound safe, but, but maybe it's good. Well, anyway, he said, my sheep hear my voice. They know my voice. I call them by name. That means the sheep must hear something like this. Blah, 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 Fluffy, blah, 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 Peter, blah, 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 blah. I mean, each sheep probably can't understand everything he says, but can know his voice, and each sheep probably hears differently. We each hear differently. 
And if you think that you don't hear, think about how you first came to say, Jesus, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, uh, like Peter said it. Well, you see, if you've said that, flesh and blood did not reveal that to you. It might have felt like flesh and blood revealed that to you, but that was your Father in heaven speaking his word into your heart. So, so how, did you, how did you hear it? What was it that made you say that, Jesus is Lord? I mean, maybe it was a, a longing, a, a thought, a, a sunset, a story. God speaks to each of, us, each of us differently. His word is recorded in Scripture, but we each must hear it in our hearts. He, he speaks through Scripture. He speaks through all creation. He speaks through the circumstances in your life. He speaks into your mind, heart, soul, and strength when you hear him with all your mind, heart, soul, and strength. You know, he often speaks to my wife in visions and words of knowledge. He hardly ever, ever, ever speaks to me that way. However, he does speak to my mind. He speaks logic. He speaks logos into my brain. So when we pray together for people, this is what happens a lot of times. He'll give Susan a picture, and then I'll have to explain it. We were praying for someone just last week, and Susan had this picture. She said, well, I, I see you. You're at the back of the line. All these people are in front of you, and you see Jesus way up there at the front of the line. And, and she didn't know whether she should even say that because it just seemed so, so sad, and she didn't know what it meant. Well, well, I immediately knew what it meant, and I said to the person, turn around. Because you see, the first has become last, and he's, he's right behind you. And see, this is my point. God was speaking to both of us, but he was speaking in a different way. That's what he does. He is the truth, and if you trust truth in you, you hear him. Jesus is the truth, and your testimony to Jesus, your testimony is prophetic. Listen to this, Revelation 19.10. The testimony of Jesus, you've got one of those. The testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Well, anyway, this man of God heard the word of God. We don't know how he heard it, but we know that he heard it. And he journeyed to Bethel, spoke it to the king in front of everyone, and yet, lo and behold, King Jeroboam just wasn't too pleased. Why? Because he did not want the word of the Lord messing up his religion. You ever had that problem? So what does Jeroboam do? He stretches out his hand toward the man of God and he cries out, seize him! And immediately as he yells it, his hand like turns to stone. And then he freaks out and he cries out to the man of God, entreat the Lord for me, heal me. And so the man of God heals him and his arm is healed. It comes back to flesh or whatever. But does King Jeroboam repent? No, he doesn't repent. If he can't control the word of God by force, he'll try seduction. So he says to the man of God, eat with me, drink with me, commune with me, sit at table with me. In that day, to sit at table with someone was like to form a covenant with them. But the man of God, he replies that he cannot for the word of the Lord has strictly forbidden him and he leaves. Verse 11, pay close attention. Now an old prophet lived in Bethel. Now this guy must have been like a prophet by trade, okay? And he's fixing to work for the king in his new civic religion, king and Country. In other words, he knows how to dress in a lion's suit. And so he's all over this new civil religion. And some fellow from Judah speaking the word of the Lord could really just mess up the show, right? Now, an old prophet lived in Bethel. 
And his sons came and told him all that the man of God had done that day in Bethel. They also told, uh, said to their father the words that he had spoken to the king. And their father said to them, which way did he go? And his sons showed him the way that the man of God who came from Judah had gone. And he said to his sons, saddle the donkey for me. So they saddled the donkey for him and he mounted it and he went after the man of God and found him sitting under an oak. He said to him, are you the man of God who came from Judah? And he said, I am. Then he said to him, come home, come home, come home with me and, and eat bread with me. And he said, I may not return with you or go in with you. Neither will I, I, I eat bread nor drink water with you in this place. For it was said to me by the word of the Lord, you shall neither eat bread nor drink water there nor return by the way that you came. And he said to him, oh, I also am a prophet. Uh, this old prophet said to him, I also am a prophet as, as you are. And an angel spoke to me by the word of the Lord, saying, bring him back with you into your house that he may eat bread and drink water. But he lied to him. So he, the man of God, went back with him and ate bread in his house and drank water. To eat and drink with someone was to like commune with them, form a, a covenant with them, at table with them. So, so, the, so the man of God, he, he resists the threats of the king, he resists the seductions of the king, but he surrenders to this false prophet. He sacrifices the word of God in his heart to religion. Does that make sense to you? It makes sense to me. I mean, think how lonely this guy must have been. His choice was to be alone with the word of God or to be approved of by prophets, priests, kings. His choice was the authority of truth in, in his own heart or, or the authority and honor of, of the synagogue, of the assembly, of uh, the group, the, that thing that we often call church. So does his bad choice make sense to you? It, it does to me. Wrestling the word of God alone in the dark can be terrifying. Remember, that's what the name Israel means. Wrestles with God. It makes sense that this guy's heart just wanted to let someone else do the wrestling for a while. And yet if we deny our own personal relationship with the word, we deny our own relationship with reality. In fact, we deny our own relationship with our person. We choose insanity, chaos, darkness, the void, because it's the word that creates all things, and it's the word that creates us, that creates each one of us uniquely in the image of God. You see, religion can turn you into something, can turn you into one more corporate disciple, one more member of the crowd, one more can do this. I know this. We even have books on how to do this. It can turn you into one more giving unit one more whitewashed tomb, one more plastic saint, but only the word of God can turn you into you. Because only the word of God knows who you are. 
So unless you surrender to the word of God in your heart, the word will say to you come judgment day something like depart from me, I never knew you. I suspect that means I, I never knew you. I mean, you, you are, are not you. <laughs> You're not you, not the you that I foreknew. The true you. So in the world to come, I shall not be asked, why were you not Billy Graham? Why were you not Mother Truth? Why were you not Moses? I will be asked, why were you not Peter? Hyatt. The true Peter is the one that's faithful to the word in his heart. The false Peter must be destroyed and will be destroyed. So you see, it's critical that you have an individual relationship with God. That means that you wrestle the word. That means that you cry out to God. That means that you go for a walk and talk to him. That means that you seek God. You seek the truth. And so the point of this sermon is don't trust sermons. Don't trust sermons in church. Trust the truth in your heart, the word of God in your heart. Now the word will come through sermons. The word will come through church. The word will come through institutions. But one day Jesus will say to you, who do you say that I am? Not who does Peter Hyatt say that I am? Or who does Billy Graham say that I am? Or who does Mother Teresa say that I am? Or who do the Presbyterians, Methodists, or Lutherans say that I am? He'll say, who do you say that I am? Anyway, you got a Bible? Read it. You got a mouth? Pray with it. You got legs? Go for a walk with him. Go for a walk with, with him, with, with, with them. Um, you, you got a heart? Surrender it. You got a brain? Wrestle the word with it. You got a life? Live it with Jesus. Live it with Jesus. Seek and you will find because You've already been found. You, you see, you can't seek truth unless you're truthful in your heart. But never, ever, ever abdicate the truth to religion. Never sacrifice the word of God to the religion of man. You know, sometimes people will come to me just so stressed over this question. Do I have a, gosh, Pastor, do Peter, do, I'm, do I have a personal relationship with Jesus. They're usually stressed because they don't hear the, the word the way somebody else hears the word. Do I have a personal relationship with Jesus? I stopped worrying about those people. Those people seeking the truth, wrestling the truth, longing uh, for truth because Jesus is the truth. And Jesus is the person. And they're obviously relating to him. And he's relating to them. Personal relationship. It's the people that think they have all the answers comfortable with their knowledge, degrees, and public approval ratings. It's the Pharisees who, Pharisees who no longer wrestle that have surrendered to darkness and end up crucifying the word. Why? Because he messes up their religion. Never ever abdicate the word of God to the religion of men. And yet, I so thoroughly, completely 
understand the temptation. Well, anyway, the man of God sacrificed the word of God to the religion of men. It's what the old prophet undoubtedly had done long ago. But the word of God is living and active and will not return void. So even if we stop wrestling the word, the word may still show up and, and wrestle us. Next verse, verse 20, pay close attention. And as they sat at table, the man of God and the old lying prophet at table, the word of the Lord came to the prophet, the formerly false prophet, right, who had brought him, the man of God, back. And this old father, the old prophet, he cried to the man of God who came from Judah, thus says the Lord, because you have disobeyed the word of the Lord and have not kept the command that the Lord your God commanded you, but have come back and have eaten bread and drunk water in the place of which he said to you, eat no bread and drink no water. Your body shall not come to the tomb of your fathers. And after he had eaten bread and drunk, he saddled the donkey for the prophet whom he had brought back. And as he went away, a lion met him on the road and killed him. Holy crap. I mean, did Aslan kill him? I mean, this is like R-rated Narnia, Narnia for adults or something, right? I mean, or, or, maybe, or maybe, maybe it's not Aslan. Maybe it's not the, the Lion of Judah, 1 Peter 5, 8. The devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour, catapino. It means to swallow, to eat, to consume. Well, anyway, as he went away, the lion met him on the road and killed him. And his body was thrown in the way in the road, and the donkey stood beside it. The lion also stood beside the body. And behold, men passed by and saw the body thrown in the road, and the lion standing by the body. And they came and told it in the city where the old prophet lived. And when the prophet, who had brought him back from, from the way, from the way, heard of it, he said, it is the man of God who disobeyed the word of the Lord. Therefore, the Lord has given him to the lion, which has torn him and killed him, according to the word that the Lord spoke to him. And he said to his son, settle the donkey for me. And they saddled it, and he went and found his body thrown in the road, and the donkey and the lion standing beside the body. The lion had not eaten the body or torn the donkey. Now, this is obviously a very um, unusual lion. Seven years ago, on safari in Africa, in an open convertible Jeep, our Maasai driver from the Maasai tribe he drove us right next to, uh, up next to this lion and I took this picture. He knew, this Maasai tribesman knew that the lion would not eat us. For he had just eaten a water buffalo that was lying right next to him. He's covered with blood all down his chin and everything. You see, he knew lions kill to eat, catapino. But this lion in our story kills the man of Judah and, and, and doesn't eat him, doesn't devour him, nor the donkey, but stands guard in the middle of the way to Ariel in Judah. I mean, this lion must be the lion of Judah. Jesus is called the lion of Judah and word of God. So in the words of Paul in 2 Timothy 2.12, it's like the man of God denied the word and the word denied the man of God. Yet, even if the man of God was faithless, 
The word, the lion, remained faithful, for he cannot deny himself. And didn't he say, let us make man in our own image and likeness. So he guards him in the way. Not safe, but good. Lamentations chapter three, Jeremiah writes, he is, he is a lion in hiding. He turned aside my steps and tore me to pieces. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness, thy faithfulness. We're faithless, and he remains faithful. You know, we're saved by the faithfulness of Jesus. Vincent Donovan was a missionary to the Maasai tribe in Africa, not far from where we saw this lion. And like we all struggle to define faith, he struggled to define faith, but especially to the Maasai. It was hard to find a word for it. He struggled until one day, uh, one of the old elders that had been Christians for a while told him this, faith is not like a white hunter shooting an animal with his gun from a great distance. For a man really to believe is like a lion going after its prey. His nose and eyes and ears pick up the prey. His legs give him the speed to catch it. All the power of his body is involved in the terrible death leap and single blow to the neck with the front paws, the, the blow that actually kills. And as the animal goes down, the lion envelops it in his arms pulls it to himself, makes it part of himself. This is the way a lion kills. This is the way a man believes. This is what faith is. Then he paused for a minute and said this. We did not search you out, Father Vincent. We did not even want you to come to us. You searched us out. You followed us away from your house into the bush, into the plains, into the steppes where our cattle are, into the hills where we take our cattle for water, into our villages, into our homes. You told us of the high God, how we must search for him, even leave our land and our people to find him. But we have not done this. We have not left our land. We have not searched for him. He has searched for us. He has searched us out and found us. All the time, we think we are the lion. And in the end, the lion is God. See, true, true faith is a, a death and a resurrection in you. Faith is the lion of God rising in you. And, and, you, and you do realize, I hope, that we all die, right? And I hope you also realize it's the word of the Lord. It's the lion that numbers our days. We all die, and frankly, honestly, the older I get, uh, the more it comforts me to know that if I lose my way, the way will not lose me. Even if he has to kill me, drag me back to the way, and keep me in the way. You see, the lion in the path is the path. Jesus is the way. We all die, but the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. We all die, but that doesn't mean the story is over. We all die. In fact, the day that most people die, they have not yet even begun to live. Why? Because life is knowing the lion. Life is faith in and through 
Jesus, the lion, and we all must die with him in order to live. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And that means the man of God died the moment he sacrificed the word of God to the religion of men. The lion just killed his body. He had already forfeited his soul. And now, now the lion stands over the body in the way, in the road, <laughs> waiting. What is this weird lion waiting for? He's waiting for the old sinner, now filled with the word, who will come take the body of the man of God from Judah and place it in his own tomb. Now the story really gets wild. Pay close attention. Verse 29. And the prophet took up the body of the man of God and laid it on the donkey and brought it back to the city to mourn and to bury him. And he laid the body in his own grave, his own tomb. And they mourned over him saying, Alas, my brother, my brother. And after he had buried him, he said to his sons, When I die, bury me in the grave in which the man of God is buried. Lay, lay, lay my bones beside his bones. For the saying that he called out by the word of the Lord against the altar in Bethel and against all the houses of the high places that are in the cities of Samaria shall surely come to pass. The word of God will not fail. And so 300 years later, okay, 300 years later, in 2 Kings, chapter 23, verse 15, after the northern kingdom had fallen to the Assyrian Empire, 300 years later, Josiah, king of Judah, king of the Jews, marches to Bethel and takes the bones of Jeroboam's false priests and false prophets and burns them on Jeroboam's altar. Chapter 23, verse 17, then King Josiah said, what is that monument that I see? And the men of the city told him, it's the tomb of the man of God who came from Judah and predicted these things that you have done against the altar at Bethel. And he said, King Josiah said, let him be. Let no man move his bones. So they let his bones alone, along with the bones of the prophet who came out of Samaria, the old lying prophet. The, the word of God will not fail. You see, it's like living and active, definitely not safe, but entirely good. It cannot be stopped. In other words, the story will be told no matter what. Even if people fail, the word will not fail. Even if they write themselves out of the story, the word will write them back in and even use them to tell the story to others. So check this out. The bones of the man of God are saved. For when he denied the word, the word overpowered the lion prophet of Samaria. In other words, when he left the way, the way found him, killed him, guarded him in the way until the Samaritan came, called this Jew, the Samaritan called this Jew brother and placed his body in his own tomb. <laughs> I mean, that should all sound kind of like vaguely familiar, but check this out. The bones of the old Samaritan prophet, the lion prophet are saved because the bones of the man of God from Judah have been placed in his own tomb. Uh, the man of God, the man of God in his own tomb, the man of God who who spoke the word but communed with this sinner at table, forming a covenant and bearing his sin. In other words, the man of God who died for his sin and was numbered with the transgressors. I mean, that should sound 
sound kind of familiar too, right? And then 100 years later, after Israel and Judah have both fallen in Babylon, the word of the Lord comes to this prophet named Ezekiel, shows him a valley of dry bones, immense valley full of all these bones, and says, son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. That's Judah and Israel. That's the old lying prophet and the man of God. The whole house of Israel prophesy to them, son of man, saying, behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves and bring you into the land of Israel. How on earth is he, is he, is he gonna do that? Well, 600 years later, an old religious Jew, a friend of Nicodemus the Pharisee, named Joseph of Arimathea, acquires some bones from Pontius Pilate. They were the bones of the Lion of Judah. And he lays them in his own tomb. Behold, he stands on a throne and says, I make all things new. Even before the bones hit the tomb. I mean, even as he hung on the tree outside the edge of Ariel, Jerusalem, even as he hung there, Matthew 27, tombs are open and saints come out and walk through the city, the lioness of God. So anyway, although the old prophet from Bethel and the man of God from Judah both denied the word, and wrote themselves out of the story and into the outer darkness, God spoke his word, wrote them back in, and used them to tell the story. He wrote Israel and Judah back in, such that they would know that they are not the author, he is the author of their story. He writes us back in. We speak sin and he sings grace. We sing discordant and sinful notes and he turns them into new and beautiful harmonies with his word. Though all men be faithless, he remains faithful. Romans 3, 4, let God be true. Though every man a liar. Revelations 5, 5, so weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. He's not a safe lion, but he's good. And this is how he conquers.
So he's not safe, but he's good. And that's how he conquers. And that's how we conquer. We die with him, and we rise with him. But you see, unlike Judah and Israel, unlike the man of God from Judah, the old prophet from Samaria, you and I don't have to wait for the bones of the lion to be placed within our tomb. You and I don't have to descend into outer darkness where men weep and gnash their teeth and wait for judgment. You and I can place the body of the lion in our tomb right now. on the night that Judah and Israel betrayed him. The night that all men, all women were faithless. On that night, the lion of Judah, Jesus our Lord, took bread and he broke it, saying, this is my body given to you. Take and eat and do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, and having given thanks, he took the cup, and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Drink of it, all of you, and do it in remembrance of me. You see, when you come to this table, you bring your tomb. It's called your flesh. And you place the lion's body in your tomb. You surrender your faithlessness to his faithfulness. You surrender the idol that is yourself to the word of God. You surrender your control to his control. You surrender your faithlessness to his faithfulness and he transforms your sin into grace, telling you who you are. It happens here, and yet it happens every moment that we surrender ourselves, our idols, to the word of God. So trust the word, and when you don't, look. He comes, and he trusts in you, inside of you. Faithfulness in you, rising in you. But don't be mistaken, he's not safe. But he's always, always good. Dark cups are wine, light cups are juice. They're both the love of God poured out for you because he will not leave you. He will not forsake you. He will remain faithful to you. So come forward, take the body, take the blood, and place it in the tomb. Pray with me real quick. Lord God, we thank you for your goodness. It's unsafe, Lord God, because we are not good. But we thank you that your goodness is transformed into grace at the cross. It always was grace, Lord God. We just didn't see it. So pray this prayer with me. Say right now, Lord God. Yeah, you can say it out loud. You wanna do that? Let's do it out loud. Say, Lord God. I surrender my faithlessness and I receive your faithfulness. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's worship.
And so, Lord God, we thank you that there is nothing more powerful than your word. And Lord God, we thank you for that fact. We don't bemoan that fact. We don't run from that fact because now we are beginning to see that your word is good. There is nothing better than your word. Not safe, but good. In Jesus' name we say it. Amen. Um. Now before you go, I just need to read you one more thing, okay? So stay standing, but to receive this benediction, if you didn't get the sermon, at least get this, okay? Jesus is the word, the word is grace. He's constantly making us in his image through faith. So God speaks his word as grace till we speak his word back to him as faith. One of my favorite pieces of literature in all the world is out of the Chronicles of Narnia. It's in The Horse and His Boy. And I read this to you like I think a few months ago. So anyway, you just have to listen again, but it's, uh, it's incredible. Um, toward the end of the book, this boy Shasta has um, come to call himself the most unfortunate boy that ever lived. And he finds himself in one more disaster. He's walking down a narrow path, okay, in the dark, confused, weeping, he thinks that he's all alone until he feels a breath, like on his arm, on the path. He realizes that whatever it is, breathing on his arm, whatever is on the path with him is immense and that he won't be able to escape. And so he whispers, who are you? And he hears, one who has waited long for you to speak. Shasta's terrorized and, and he says, oh, I'm the most unlucky person in the whole world. And the voice says, tell me your sorrows. And Shasta does. He unloads all of his sorrows, all of his shame, his litany of woes. I do not call you unfortunate, said the large voice. Don't you think it was just bad luck to meet so many lions, said Shasta. There was only one lion, said the voice. I was the lion. And as Shasta gaped with open mouth and said nothing, the voice continued. I was the lion who forced you to join with Eraphis. I was the cat who comforted you among the houses of the dead. I was the lion who drove the jackals from you while you slept. I was the lion who gave the horses the new strength of fear for the last mile so that you should reach King Loon in time. I was the lion you do not remember who pushed the boat in which you lay a child near death so that it came to shore where a man sat wakeful at midnight to receive you. The then it was you who wounded Erebus. It was I. But, but, but what for? Child, said the voice. I am telling you your story, not hers. I tell no one any story but his own. Who are you? asked Shasta. Myself, said the voice, very deep and low so that the earth shook. And again, myself, loud and clear and gay. And then the third time, myself whispered so softly you could hardly hear it, and yet it seemed to come from all around you as if the leaves rustled with it. Shasta was no longer afraid that the voice belonged to something that would eat him, but a new and different sort of trembling came over him, and he felt glad. The lion isn't safe, but he's good. The lion is the word of the Lord. Trust the word of the Lord in your heart and don't fear for even when you don't trust, he will still come for you and trust in you. That's the gospel.
Good news. In Jesus' name, believe it. Amen.